0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For more in-depth info and out-there facts, check out the Cutting Class Podcast. We're Cutting Class Podcast. We are two high school history teachers that do a weekly podcast together every Wednesday. We do all kinds of topics ranging from the funny to the very serious. We've done one on a history of cargo cults in the Pacific Islands that worship airplanes and figures that maybe don't exist in American history. Also, that crazy time that Cleveland released a billion balloons into the air and caused all kinds of chaos. So we have a little bit of everything, and we hope that you guys would give us a listen. We're on iTunes and other podcast mediums, so check us out, Cutting Class Podcast. The story so far. In the beginning, the universe was created. This made a lot of people very angry and has widely been regarded as a bad move. Thus begins Douglas Adams' The Restaurant at the End of the Universe, sequel to his cultural touchstone, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's the book that gave us the answer to life, the universe, and everything, but not the question. Welcome to episode number 42 of Your Brain on Facts, which I have decided to devote to... The history of British comedy. That means we're going to try to cram hundreds of years, thousands of performers, and a dozen mediums into a half-hour show. But don't panic. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. vs. China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. British comedy is measured in centuries, from chase scenes and beatings in Shakespeare's comedies to the misadventures of Mr. Bean. Even as times, tastes, and technologies change, some themes are eternal. Innuendo, for example, has been a staple in literature as far back as Beowulf and Chaucer, and is prevalent in many British folk songs. King Charles II was such a fan of Innuendo that he encouraged it to the point that restoration comedy became not only its own genre, but an explicit one at that. The repressive Victorian period gave us burlesque, though not in the same form as the shows you can see today. More vaudeville than striptease. Absurdism and the surreal have always been an undercurrent, which firmly took root in the 1950s, leading to shows like Red Dwarf, The Mighty Boosh, and even Count Dacula. Though the British Empire successfully conquered a quarter of the globe, its individual people struggled and suffered. Plagues, wars, poverty, class oppression, and filthy cities gave rise to, and a need for, black humor, in which topics and events that are usually treated seriously are treated humorously or irreverently. The class system, especially class tension with pompous, dim-witted members of the upper middle class or embarrassingly blatant social climbers, has always provided ample material, Which we can see in modern shows like Absolutely Fabulous, Keeping Up Appearances, and Blackadder. The British also value finding humor in everyday life, which you can see in Father Ted, The IT Crowd, and Spaced, which also incorporates a fair amount of absurdity. But there's nothing the Brits do better than satire, and nobody does it better. The British, being cynical and sarcastic by nature, do have a natural flair for satire says bbcamerica.com writer Fraser McAlpine. There's a history of holding up a mirror to society and accentuating its least attractive qualities that goes back hundreds of years. Sometimes the satire is biting and cold. Sometimes it's warm and encouraging. But if you want someone who can say a thing that isn't true, but also somehow is true in a really profound way, you need look no further. There are three principal forms of satire, Menippean satire uses fantasy realms that reflect back on modern society. Everything from Alice in Wonderland to the works of Terry Pratchett fit here, as would Doctor Who. Horatian satire skewers cultural moments of silliness using parodic humor. These are the kinds of things you tend to see in most TV comedy, like The Office. We're laughing at people being inept and harassed, but not evil. Juvenalian satire skewers everything with abrasive, often bleak wit. If there's an element of horror at the topic being discussed, that's a clue that it's probably juvenalian. John Oliver is a fair hand with juvenalian satire. Most political cartoons and black humor fall under this heading. Though comedy is as old as laughter, we're going to begin today's time travel with The Music Hall. Side note, The narrative today is going to be overall linear, but there will be a fair amount of bouncing around. Music halls sprang up as an answer to proper theater, which was at the time heavily monitored and censored by the government. It took place in humble venues like the backs of pubs and coffeehouses. By the 1830s, taverns had rooms devoted to musical clubs. They presented Saturday evening sing-songs and -and free-and-easies. These became so popular that entertainment would be put on two or three times a week. Music in the form of humorous songs was a key element because dialogue was forbidden. Dialogue was the theater, and if you had speaking parts, you'd be subject to the same censorship. The Theater Licensing Act of 1737 empowered the Lord Chamberlain's office to censor plays. This act would be in effect until 1968. So, no speaking parts, less censorship. Music Hall also allowed drinking and smoking, that legitimate theaters didn't. As the shows became more popular, they moved from the pubs into venues of their own. Tavern owners, therefore, often annexed buildings adjoining their premises as music halls. Typical shows consisted of six to eight acts possibly including a comedy sketch with low comedy to appeal to the working class, a juggler or magic act, mime, acrobats, dancers, a singer, and perhaps even a one-act play. In the United States, this format was vaudeville. The music hall era was a heyday for female performers, with headliners like Gracie Fields, Lily Langtree, and Vesta Tilly. The advent of the talking motion picture in the late 1920s caused music halls to convert into cinemas to stay in business. To keep the comedians employed, a mixture of films and songs called cine-variety was introduced. The other critically important tradition of this era was panto or pantomime, but not in the Marcel Marceau type of pantomime you might be picturing, but a type of theatrical musical comedy designed for family entertainment. Modern pantomime included song, gags, slapstick, dancing, and gender-crossing characters. It combined topical humor with well-known stories like fables and folktales. It was a participatory form of theater in which the audience was expected to sing along with certain parts of the music and shout out phrases to the performers. It's traditionally quite popular around Christmas and New Year's. In the early 19th century, Pantomime acquired its present form and featured the first mainstream clown, Joseph Grimaldi. Comedians who honed their skills in panto and music hall sketches include Charlie Chaplin and Stan Laurel. The influential British music hall comedian and theatre impresario Fred Carno developed a form of sketch comedy without dialogue in the 1890s, and Chaplin and Laurel were among those who worked as part of Fred Carno's army. Hopping back to famous ladies of the music hall, one such was Lily Harley, though her greatest claim to fame was probably having given birth to Charles Spencer Chaplin. When Lily inexplicably lost her voice in the middle of a show, the production manager pushed the five-year-old Charlie, whom he'd heard sing, onto the stage to replace her. Charlie lit up the audience, wowing them with his natural comedic presence. Sadly, Lily's voice never recovered, and she was unable to support her two sons, who were sent to a workhouse. For those of us who don't know workhouses outside of one reference in A Christmas Carol, think of an orphanage or jail with indentured servitude. Young Charlie took whatever jobs he could find to survive as he fought his way back to the stage. His acting debut was as a pageboy in a production of Sherlock Holmes. From there, he toured with a vaudeville outfit Named Casey's Court Circus, and in 1908, teamed up with Fred Carnot. With the Carnot troupe, Chaplin got his first taste of the United States, where he caught the eye of a film producer who signed him to a contract for $150 a week, equivalent to over three grand today. During his first year with the company, Chaplin made 14 films, including The Tramp, which established his trademark character and his role as an unexpected hero. By the age of 26, Chaplin, just three years removed from his vaudeville days, was a superstar. He'd moved over to the Mutual Company, which paid him a whopping $670,000 a year to make now classics like Easy Street. Chaplin came to be known as a grueling perfectionist. His love for experimentation often meant countless takes, and it wasn't uncommon to see him order the rebuilding of an entire set or begin filming with one actor realized he'd made a mistake in the casting, and start again with someone new. But you can't argue with results. During the 1920s, Chaplin's career blossomed with landmark films like The Kid and The Gold Rush, a movie Chaplin would later say he wanted to be remembered by. We'll leave Chaplin's story while he's on top, because his private life from here gets, well, a little sordid. Though Chaplin was English, his films were American, British cinema arguably lagged a few decades behind, but they began to close the gap in the 1940s. Films by Ealing Studios, particularly their comedies like Hue and Cry, Whiskey Galore, and The Lady Killers, began to push the boundaries of what could be done in cinema, dealing with previously taboo topics like crime in comedic ways. Kitchen Sink dramas followed soon after, portraying social realism with the struggles of working-class Britons on full display, living in cramped rented accommodations and spending their off hours drinking in dark pubs, to explore controversial social and political issues ranging from abortion to homelessness. These contrasted sharply with the idea of cinema as escapism. This was the era of such notable stars as actor, comedian, singer-songwriter Norman Wisdom. Beginning with 1953's Trouble in the Store, for which he won a BAFTA, the British equivalent to an Oscar, his films were among Britain's biggest box office successes of their day. Wisdom gained celebrity status in lands as far away as South America, Iran, and many Eastern Bloc countries, particularly in Albania, where his films were the only ones by Western actors permitted by dictator Enver Hoxha to be shown. He also played one of the best characters in one of my favorite and most hard-to-find films, The Night They Raided Minsky's. There are few institutions in British history that have had such a massive role in shaping the daily lives of citizens as the British Broadcasting Corporation, which for decades meant the wireless radio. For many, it is an ever-present companion, from breakfast time to bedtime, from childhood through to old age. There it is telling us about ourselves in the wider world, amusing us and entertaining us, says Robin Aitken, former BBC reporter and journalist. The BBC solidified its place in the public consciousness from its beginnings in 1922 to the end of the Second World War in 1945 because these pivotal years helped redefine what it meant to be British in modern society. This was especially true during the high unemployment in the 1920s, when other forms of entertainment were unaffordable. The BBC was formed from a merger of several major radio manufacturers in 1922, receiving a royal charter in 1927, and governmental protection from foreign competition, which made it essentially a monopoly. Broadcasting was seen as a public service. A job at the BBC carried similar gravitas to a government job. Classical music and educational programs were its bedrock, with radio plays added to bring theater to the wireless. The BBC strove to be varied but balanced in its offerings, neutral but universal. Nevertheless, some people found it elitist and not representative of the population as a whole. Expansions and offerings came slowly, if at all, in the early years. Trying to bring only the best of culture to the people meant that body music-hall-style acts had little to no place on the radio. Obscenity was judged by laws passed as early as 1727. British libel and slander laws are more strict than those in the U.S., so making fun of public figures was taboo, even in forms that would have been legal. And blasphemy? Lord no. In 1949, the BBC issued the Variety Program's Policy Guide for Writers and Producers commonly known as The Green Book. Among things absolutely banned were jokes about lavatories, effeminacy in men, immorality of any kind, suggestive references to honeymoon couples, chambermaids, fig leaves, ladies' underwear, prostitution, and the vulgar use of words such as basket. Not an actual basket, mind you, the Polari word basket, meaning the bulge in a gentleman's trousers. More on Polari later. The guidelines also stipulated that such words as god, good god, my god, blast, hell, damn, bloody, gore-blimey, ruddy, etc. should be deleted from scripts and innocuous expressions substituted. Where the independently run music halls gave people what they wanted, the BBC radio gave people what it felt they needed. But comedy writers are nothing if not clever, and there's always a way to slip past the censors if you try. In the very beginning of radio, comedies lampooned the poor, because only those with money had radios. As radio ownership grew, the topics of shows broadened. The first half-hour comedy program was 1938's Bandwagon, which included musical interludes similar to a music hall show. It was effectively a sitcom, setting the stage for much of what came after. By this time, nearly every household had gotten a radio, World War II had an enormous impact on British comedy and entertainment in general. Unlike World War I, which was fought on the continent, World War II was right on top of them, with the blitz, blackouts, rationings, etc. All places of amusement, which by their nature meant lots of people would gather and could be a target for bombings, were ordered to be closed but the government soon realized that comedy had an important role to play in helping its people to keep calm and carry on. Bonus fact, the iconic Keep Calm and Carry On poster was designed months before the war began, but never officially sanctioned for display. It only achieved its prominent position in pop culture after its rediscovery in 2001. All of the parody t-shirts still annoy me, though. A lot happens every day. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history. If so, join me, Katie Charlewood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, part of the Area of Media Network, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, zen, my friends. Bye bye i'll be seeing you theater was allowed to continue but television service was suspended this brought radio back to the forefront for communication and diversion the most popular show at the time was it's that man again that ran on bbc radio from 39 to 49 its humor was a great unifier during the war helping people to laugh at the things they were scared of. People would often listen huddled around their radio during a blackout. In its character archetypes, it offered a more comprehensive range of social representation than what had come before it, with characters ranging from an East End charwoman to upper-class dandies. It was so universally popular that the catchphrases it spawned, and it's regarded as the first to have really succeeded in spawning catchphrases, they were supposedly used to test suspected German spies. If you didn't know who said what, you'd be shot. From the BBC Radio 2 documentary, A History of British Comedy. One of the things that was interesting about Itmar is that almost every character that appears in Itmar was someone who at one level or another one was acquainted with. There were char ladies like Mrs. Mopp who knocked on the door and said, Can I do you now, sir? And then she would say something, I brought this for you, sir. And then Tommy Handley would say, well, what is it? It's one of my lodgers' leavings. Well, you see, here is a working-class woman made comic, but at the same time, there were also upper-class figures who were made comic. And there were people from different regions who were made comic. There was a Welshman who appeared in the latter part of Itmar called Sam Fairfacken, who came in and said, uh, good morning, how are you? As if I cared. During the war, Britain fought back against Nazi propagandists' ferocious scaremongering, with things like a song about the fact that Hitler may or may not have only had one testicle, the other of which they were storing in a London theatre for safekeeping. This attitude, combined with having had enough authority to last them a while, would extend to their own government at the start of the 1960s, when Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, Alan Bennett, and Jonathan Miller made fun of the Prime Minister in their stage show Beyond the Fringe, with the Prime Minister in the audience. This would open the door for satirical news programs like 1962's That Was the Week That Was, Grandfather to The Daily Show and The Colbert Report. There was also the Frost Report, whose staff of writers included five names well known to many that we're going to get into more detail on later. Chapman, Jones, Idle, and Cleese. The war would remain subject to comedy, either as the primary setting or a recurring plot point for decades to come, in shows like Dad's Army, Hello, Hello, and even Are You Being Served, one of my personal favorites. If you've ever seen me at my customer service day job, I pattern my behavior on Mrs. Slocum, though I don't reference my pussy quite as often. The last time I was late. A fireman had to climb out of my bedroom window and risk his life on a narrow ledge trying to grab hold of my pussy. <laughs> Mrs. Slocum, there is a strict rule that staff may not bring pets to the store. Well, you know how clumsy those removal men are. I'm not having a in my pussy. <laughs> Hello, is that Mr. Eckbar, Mrs. Slocum here, your next door neighbour. I wonder, um, would you do me a favour? Would you go to my front door, bend down, and look through the letterbox? And if you can see my pussy, would you drop a sardine on the map? Experiences in the war led to the prominence of absurdism and surrealism, because nothing could match what the men had been through. One of the most famous examples of this was The Goon Show, with Spike Milligan, Harry Seacombe, and Peter Sellers. The scripts mixed ludicrous plots with surreal humor, puns, catchphrases, and an array of bizarre sound effects. Some of the later episodes featured electronic effects devised by the fledgling BBC Radiophonic Workshop, who also gave the world the theme to Doctor Who. The Goon Show and other such programs were popular with students at the time, seeding their sense of humor into the next generation. Spike Milligan in particular had wide-reaching cultural influence. The Goon Show was cited as a major influence by The Beatles, the American comedy team The Firesign Theater, as well as, among many others, Monty Python. Speaking of those six renowned individuals, it is my pleasure to welcome our sixth patron on Patreon, Michael Kay. Like other $10 a month supporters, Michael gets his name read on the podcast, will receive a bonus mini episode each month, and gets early access to each regular weekly episode. A pledge of as little as $2 a month is greatly appreciated. Not only does this help me to cover the costs of hosting the podcast, the website, the microphone I just had to replace, but it also helps me to support the Patreon page of Kevin McLeod the man who composes the license-free music that I use. So if you'd like to see what tiers we have on offer, and would consider lending your support, visit patreon.com yourbrainonfacts. Do you remember how in episode 39 of this show, short-lived, long-remembered, I said that Jackie Gleason's Honeymooners was the first TV sitcom? I was mistaken, and I don't mind issuing a correction. Pinwright's Progress which ran for 10 episodes starting in 1946, was the first half-hour television sitcom, telling the tale of a beleaguered shop owner, his hated rival, and his unhelpful staff. By 1955, one-third of British households had a television. That year saw the launch of ITV, I for Independent, because it was not run by the BBC, with its war vets with good school educations, But by showmen and entertainers. Where the BBC did comedies for and about the middle class, ITV brought full blooded variety to television. The BBC was forced to loosen its tie a bit to keep up. ITV also had commercials, which BBC shows never did, a concept that is quite foreign to the American brain. So writers had to learn to pace their shows differently to allow for the break. One standout was Hancock's Half Hour, which began on radio and moved to TV. From 1954 to 61, it pushed sitcoms with a focus on character development rather than silly setups, musical interludes, and funny voices like they had in radio plays. Two writers on the show, Ray Galton and Alan Simpson, would leave to create Comedy Playhouse in 1961, comprised of ten half-hour plays. One of these grew into the TV show Steptoe and Son, which ran from 62 to 74, about two rag-and-bone men, father and son, who lived together in a squalid house in West London. This was the basis for the American series Sanford and Son, as well as versions in Sweden, the Netherlands, and Portugal. For those not in the know, a rag-and-bone man collected salvageable rubbish from the streets, making it an odd name choice for a clothing company, but oh well. The tone and offerings changed considerably with the cultural revolution of the 1960s. Rock music, the birth control pill, civil rights, everything was changing. Round the Horn, which aired on BBC Radio on Sunday afternoons, was chock full of brazen innuendos and double entendres. Some of them were risque to the point of being, ironically, safe. People who would have objected to them were not of the sensibility to catch the joke in the first place. Their most remarkable characters were Julian and Sandy, two very obviously gay characters in a time when it was illegal to be gay in Britain. Julian and Sandy got away with the boldest of their jokes because they spoke Polari, a sort of pidgin language made up from Romani, French, Yiddish, Italian, theatre and circus slang, and even words spelled backwards. Polari allowed gay people to communicate without giving themselves away. Julian and Sandy might refer to someone's dirty dishes, and the squares would have no idea that dish meant derriere. Bonus fact, you probably use Polari words without even realizing it. If you describe a masculine person as butch, or something kitschy as camp, and even drag meaning clothes, particularly women's. The Carry On films, a franchise that put out nearly a movie a year for three decades and spun off a TV series, held up a cartoonish mirror to the depressed and repressed Britain of the 1950s and 60s. They blended the rapid-fire pace of music hall sketches with topicality and a liberating sense of directness. Carry On also filled the gap left as music halls as an institution began to collapse. And now for something completely different. Monty Python's Flying Circus aired from 1969 to 1974 and enjoyed a unique watershed success, not just for British comedy, but also for television comedy around the world. Monty Python was unlike anything that had appeared on television, and in many ways it was both a symbol and a product of the social upheaval and youth-oriented counterculture of the late 1960s. The show's humor could be simultaneously sarcastic, scatological, and intellectual. The series was a creative collaboration between Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, Michael Palin, and Terry Gilliam, the sole American in a group of Oxford and Cambridge graduates. The five Brits played most of the roles, with Gilliam primarily contributing eccentric animations. Although sketch comedy shows were nothing new, Television had never broadcast anything as untraditional and surreal, and it's importance to television is difficult to overstate. Their free-form sketches seldom adhered to any particular theme, and disregarded the conventions of comedy that writers, performers, and audiences had been accustomed to for generations. Even the opening title sequence didn't follow the rules. It might run in the middle of the show or be omitted entirely. Over the run of the series, a few characters recurred, but most were written for a single sketch. The show spun off a number of feature films, like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, The Life of Brian, and The Meaning of Life. It even created a Tony Award-winning musical comedy, Spam a Lot, first produced in 2005, as well as books and albums like Instant Record Collection. Decades after the show's initial run, the mere mention of Dead Parrots, Silly Walks, Spam, or The Spanish Inquisition is enough to prompt laughter from even casual fans. All the members of Monty Python continued on to successful careers, but let's follow John Cleese to his next best-known project. Faulty Towers has been described as the sitcom by which other sitcoms must be measured, voted number one in the British Film Institute's 100 Greatest British Television Programs in 2000. Its main character, Basil Fawlty, was inspired by a seethingly rude hotel proprietor that John Cleese encountered while filming abroad with the Monty Python team. Cleese actually tested the character on another show in 1971, Doctor at Large, a comedy about newly graduated doctors based on the books of Richard Gordon. The setting for Fawlty Towers was a painfully ordinary hotel that Basil constantly struggled to inject a touch of class into. His escapades included trying to hide a rat from a hygiene inspector, keeping a dead customer hidden, and pretending that his wife Sibyl was ill during their anniversary party when in fact she had walked out on him. Basil was the perfect vehicle for Cleese's comedic talents, mixing the biting verbal tirades against his wife and guests with the physical dexterity utilized to charge about between self-induced disasters. Part of the success of the show is arguably the fact that it ran for a mere 12 episodes, so it never had time to run out of steam. That's a key difference between British and American television. A British show might have two writers for a season of 6 to 10 episodes, whereas an American show will have a team of writers for a season of 13 to 25 episodes. Quality over quantity, I suppose. In part, it's a reflection of the difference between the size of the TV audience in the two countries and the economics of television production. For decades, sitcoms on US TV delivered the highest ratings, whereas in Britain, the highest ratings were normally for soap operas. Faulty Towers was remade in a number of other countries, but those versions never really captured the success of the original. The tone shifted again as the 1960s gave way to the 70s, The anger of 60s revolution subsided into a more comfortable feeling in the 1970s. One of the standouts of the decade, which continued into the 80s, was The Two Ronnies. A sketch show starring Ronnies Barker and Corbett, it moved away from the long-standing comic and straight man format. It was the BBC's flagship of light entertainment, the longest-running show of its genre. If we're talking modern comedy duos, we need to talk about Dawn French and Jennifer Saunders. Even in alternative comedy scenes, women had trouble gaining the same notoriety as their male peers. A step in the right direction was 1987's French and Saunders, a sketch show that displayed the willful amateurishness of the alternative comedy scene, but shunned both the violence and strident politics that were staples of bigger-name performers. The duo's humor was distinctly female, but not feminist, and most of their jokes were at the expense of themselves or each other. As audiences and budgets grew, the pair increasingly favored elaborate spoofs of pop stars in blockbuster movies. After the show, French starred in The Vicar of Dibley, and Saunders went on to the role she's probably best known for, Edina in Absolutely Fabulous. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today— Don't be surprised if this topic spawns a sequel. I left out Punch and Judy, skipped right over literature, had to forego luminaries like Morecambe and Wise, didn't get to the panel show format, and I said nothing of Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie, which may actually be a crime, I'm not sure. Well, as they say in the biz, always leave them wanting more. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and thanks for putting up with my hoarse voice from Fall Allergies. Today's episode was brought to you by the word sopping, sopping. I hope you've enjoyed the dirty sounding words. We began them with episode 13 and episode 42. Seems like an auspicious enough place to end. The words, not the whole podcast.